one moment, okay? I have a little assignment for you. Uh, before we do that, though, a couple of you are off the hook, and that is, uh, somehow this always seems to fall to, to mom and the family in our household, but um, I want you to pull out your, your bulletin. It looks like this, and inside of it is this cool excerpt that you get to pull out and look at. Um, we are not pulling a King David here and taking a census uh, because we read in the Old Testament that that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, but we do want to re-register your family with Neighborhood Bible Church. And we're going to do it this week and next week for those who may not be here this morning. Um, but we, de- we determined that it would probably get the best results if we actually gave time for you to do it right now. So one person in your household, this, this covers the whole family. Um, unless you have uh, more than three children, so some of you will need to say see attached and you'll have to write on a Starbucks napkin or whatever you brought with you. But uh, basically we want you to fill this out uh, right now. One, one person in your family can do that. And if you would just turn that in at the offering time, uh, that would be great. And that's just going to help us update our records and make sure we have the current info. And uh, if you change your child's name or any of that kind of stuff, we'll have a record of that and uh, all that good stuff. The rest of you, uh, you get to do something right now, um, and that is this. I want you to um, preferably find someone you're not necessarily sitting with. Maybe that person that you just met, you can go back and show off how great you listened and say, Hi, Frank. And uh, if you don't remember, look at their name tag. That's a cheat sheet for you. Um, but I want you to go to a person near you right now and just kind of one-on-one I want you to do this. I want you to think, kids included, everyone in the room included, I want you to think of something that a person can be a disciple of that doesn't have to do with church, God, or Jesus. So understand the question. You can be a disciple of something. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a disciple of Jesus when you use the word disciple. So I want you to think right now, what is something you can be a disciple of that isn't Jesus, God, or relating to the church? Go right now and talk amongst yourself. Find a person and exchange an answer. Everyone has to come up with an answer to this. And if you're stumped, ask your person for a second one. Go, talk amongst yourselves. Okay. All right. Let me let me break it up again. And uh, I'm just I'm just curious to hear some of the answers that you guys came up with. What are some things you can be a disciple of that don't have to relate to the church and that kind of thing? Trent, did you have one? What is it, buddy? Money. You can be a disciple of money. All right. In the back, Lindsay. Your job. Okay. Yeah, it could be a disciple of your job. What else? Sports. Sports. What else? Education. 
Yeah, there's a whole discipleship element to all that. Yeah, William. Video games. Yeah. Kids are like, yes, this is a good church service. Anything else? What else comes to mind? Someone else. What? Cycling. Cycling, okay. Yeah. Really dialed into a specific sport. It's funny because we use, what was that, Julie? Water skiing. skiing. Yes, that's coming off of uh, being up at a water ski outreach last weekend. You know, uh, we use words sometimes, and when I hear the word disciple, I tend to immediately think of church. I tend to immediately put it in a Christian context and a Christian worldview. Today we're actually going to look at the word discipleship a little bit, and we're going we're to talk about that, and we're going we're to dive into to some of those things. And to realize that, um, just like a lot of words that we use in church, there's a lot of praise that went on this weekend, and it had nothing to do with crying out to a holy God. There's worship that goes on every single day. There's worship happening right now. I drove by the bus once again. I seem to time it just right that's heading up to Clear Creek to do some gambling this morning. And uh, so if I ever just don't show up, you know, call up Clear Creek and see if I'm up there worshiping, you know, I love you, casino. I love you, casino. I don't know how they worship. But there's worship going on all the time. And there's, there's disciples of all kinds of schools of thought. could be a political candidate. Um, I, someone up here brought the idea of Bill Walsh, a famous 49er football coach, and they actually use the word, there are disciples of Bill Walsh all around and influences that, that they've trained and studied under. And we're going to look at that this morning and, and look at what God has to say for us about discipleship. And we're going to look to the scriptures to, to, to understand that. I have just a couple of announcements that I want to, want to make you aware of. Um, and that is this. One is we have our um, kind of our very first. I, I've been letting you know um, that as a leadership, uh, we started this church a, a little over uh, roughly two years ago. Um, and we intentionally started with no youth ministry. And, and we did that for some very specific reasons. But one of the things that we always prayed for and asked and, you know, and, and, and just sought God on was we're right next door to a middle school. We're right down the street from two high schools. And we knew that God would one day begin to prompt us and open some doors for us. And this coming Thursday, we're actually having our very first NBC middle school camp out. And it's going to be an awesome time, yeah. And, uh, and Lord willing, I'm going to go to it. One of the middle schoolers here this morning said, is it going to rain? And I'm like, you know what, if it does, that's one new layer of adventure that we're going to have and memories. And it's going to be an awesome time. So some of you who have a heart for that, as God brings it to mind, just be praying for us. Because to me, it's just an exciting thing. We've had tons of youth here. That's what's really cool. Is we haven't had a youth ministry, but tons of youth that have been thoroughly plugged in to missions trips, to the worship service, to serving every single Sunday morning, whether you see them or not. And we're just excited about what God is doing um, to not just minister to those that, those that are already here, but just the countless of kids, countless number of kids that we see every single day outside my office window, this cacophony of noise shows up around 10:15 when break happens, and all the kids get let out of school. And it's just awesome, because it's like God letting me know, man, that's our mission field right there. And so we're just super excited about that. If you have any questions about that or whatever, come and talk to me right after the service, and uh, I'll fill you in on the specifics. Some of you know... Um, who uh, Isabel Lucas is, and some of you don't know who Isabel Lucas is. I had someone talk to me the other day, and he said, um, he said, Dave, yeah, I, I remember something about uh, this message you spoke, but what I mostly remembered that day was, um, was this woman who passed out in the middle of the service, and there was a big medical emergency. <laughs> and uh, that's who Isabel Lucas was. Some of you know her now. You're like, oh, that woman. Um, well, some 
kind lady in our church thought it'd be great to just put a card together. I want you to know she doesn't she isn't able to come to our church regularly. Um, but that was one of the first Sundays she had come in several months because of treatments and medical issues and whatnot. And here she finally was able to make it to church, and she got escorted away in an ambulance. So um, let that be a lesson to you. If you, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> totally kidding. That, that's borderline inappropriate, but we'll get away with it. Um, but here's a card in the back. You don't even need to know who Isabella is, but just from her church family, it's going to be in the back. And um, Trevor, I'm going to ask you to participate in the service here. Grab that and just put it in the back on the back table for me. It'll be back there just kind of waiting for you. So just sign a little card of, of encouragement, and that will get to her. Um, that's it. Uh, one other thing. If you haven't filled out your registration card, do that. But we also have these. These are just communication cards slash if you're new here and you're not on our uh, you know, on our email list or whatever else, just fill out a, um, a little card so we can get to know you a little bit and put that in the, in the offering as well. And uh, Rob? Dave, I want to thank you for that word, cacophony. That was uh, pretty amazing. <laughs> and we're going to take up our tithes and our, tithes and our offering now. And this is the way we live through your word. And uh, it would inspire us to do great things in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, children, you are dismissed. Thanks for worshiping with us and uh, teachers as well. If you have your Bibles this morning, um, I'd invite you to open up to John chapter 1. We on? Can you hear me okay out there? Nods? Yes? No? We turn up a little bit, Ron? Thanks. Uh, John chapter 1, and if you have a a bulletin this morning, uh, there's some notes in there for you. They look like this. You can go ahead and pull those out as well. Some of you have been with us uh, Last several weeks, know that we've been in the book of John. We took a little diversion last week uh, over to Zimbabwe. And that's not a book of the Bible, that's a country. And uh, Glenn just shared. And how many of you, um, how many of you at some point, um, don't worry, I'm not going to necessarily hold you to this, but how many at some point during the message last week just wondered if God wanted you to be a missionary in Africa? Can you just raise your hand? I think there were, I think there were like, like I said, I'm not taking a video of this, so I'm going to call you. But there's something about seeing those pictures that you just go, ah, I, wonder if, I wonder if this is where God really wants me. I mean, I wonder if there's just something more to my life that I could be devoting it to and giving it to. And my wife was so bummed uh, when she knew she was missing Glenn talking about Zimbabwe because Glenn goes every year. Glenn and I have been working together for 10 years. And every single time Glenn comes back from Zimbabwe, I am both uh, bracing myself for serious conviction uh, but I'm also bracing myself for just like, like fresh clarity on what's really important. It's been really important to our team at Valley Church uh, to just have that person going away and saying, man, here's what God's doing there, and here's what's really most important. And it's just helped us not get wandering about the petty, weird little things that we can complain and gripe about. And um, oh, I just love that. I hope God spoke to you last week just seeing images and pictures and um, and all of that. Well, we're back in the book of John this morning, and, uh, and two weeks ago, I kind of did part one of this message, and I want to pick up some of the themes that I, that I touched on last time. Um, it, we, we called it trading up, and, uh, and Rob alluded to the fact that our marriage to God, and by the way, that's not a stretch. It's not a disrespectful metaphor. That's a biblical metaphor of how we're joined to God. It's that intimate. It's that close. And if there was ever someone who married up, It's a disciple of Jesus who realizes that they're united with Christ, that they're the bride of Christ. 
And if you've ever married up, you can realize, wow, I've married up uh, into a perfect God and into a perfect husband, as it were. And, um, and the other side of that was, was that John the Baptist came on the scene and, and as he developed kind of a following and as he developed disciples, this image is beautiful because it's, it's like you can only get so high on this one rock. It kind of has an ending to it. Do you see that? And John kind of guided his band of people up uh, as high as he could go. And then he said, there's Jesus. My whole point of my ministry is to point all of you over to Jesus. So there you go. There he is. And it says in our text that disciples left John and went to follow Jesus. Not out of competition, but out of the prompting of the one they were following, namely John the Baptist. And so we're going to pick up on some things. Last week, what I did was I looked at this big chunk of Scripture we're looking at, and two major things began to pop out at me. One was this idea of what a witness is, what a prototype witness looks like. And we looked at that last week. Here are some things that we talked about. One is that as a witness, I speak clearly because I know my role. And John didn't get off into all kinds of tangents about, about prophecy and about the end times and about all kinds of different stuff. All he did was he spoke very authoritatively on what he knew. He also didn't get worked up as people went away from him to Jesus because he knew his role. Secondly, there is that as a witness, I speak authoritatively because of what I know. Thirdly is this, as a witness, I bring others to the source. That's just this idea that these disciples went and found people and said, look, don't come to me, come to Jesus. And you just see them keep bringing people to Jesus, keep bringing people to Jesus. And then fourthly, there is a witness. I offer the invitation of Jesus to those I care about. And that's just this idea. I love it. The day before, some of these very disciples heard Jesus say, come and see. It was this invitation. Hey, come and see. And then the very next day, they go to someone and they say, um, hey, we found the Messiah. Come and see. It's like they're mimicking the words of Jesus and just giving that invitation and, and passing it on. And I thought, what a beautiful picture for us as as Modern-day witnesses, read the words of Jesus, find the words in red in the Gospels, and offer those words of life to people. Where there's an invitation, invite people with the very words that Jesus uses. And there's something powerful about that that goes on. Those are prototype witnesses, and that's the lens with which we looked at two weeks ago. And this morning what I want to do is this. I want to take the same passage of Scripture, and I want to draw out some some pictures of the word discipleship and look at what does a prototype disciple look like? There's a prototype witness that we see, John the Baptist and some others, but there's also elements of discipleship here that are really, really key. I looked up the word prototype. It just says this. It's, it's an original type form or instance of something serving as a typical example basis or standard of other things in that same category. If you were to go to Berean right now, a Christian bookstore about a mile from here, you would find tons and tons and tons of books on discipleship. And if you were to begin dialoguing here and say, what is Christian discipleship all about? We'd begin to have tons of answers come at us, wouldn't we? There would just be a lot of opinions about what that looks like. And, and it might start getting a really long list or a really complex picture. So I thought how beautiful it would be to just go back really simply to the first disciples. Let's learn from them about what a disciple looks like, about what a disciple is. 
What we're really talking about in John chapter 1, especially the second half of the chapter, is it's a chapter of testimonies. It's just these stories. It's these snapshots. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago, John's bringing characters onto the scene for a very specific purpose. There were surely others. In fact, we know there were others that were called by Jesus and that were some of the first disciples. But he mentions some of them here on purpose because he's kind of building this case. This whole series is this idea of God being revealed in this person Jesus Christ that he sent. I don't know if you've ever heard this voice inside of your head. But if you're like me, you've heard this before. Now, mind you, I grew up in church, and so I've been, I've been hearing about discipleship. I've been hearing about what it means to follow Jesus for a really, really long time. Here's the voice that, that I hear in my head sometimes. Maybe you've heard this voice too. You can fill in your own name, but Dave, you know, Mark, whoever it is, you don't read your Bible enough. Dave, you don't pray enough. Or maybe you don't pray right for the right kinds of things. Dave, you're not sharing your faith enough. Dave, you don't love God enough. Dave, you're not committed enough. Dave, you're not spiritual enough. I'm seeing some nods, and so my hunch is that some of you have heard that same voice and you're wondering why it's calling you Dave. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You've heard those things, haven't you? And you walk with Christ and you go, man, I, I know I should want to go to Africa, but I don't, so maybe I'm not spiritual enough. And once again, I heard that answers are found in God's Word, but I I didn't read the Word this week, or, or I didn't read it enough, or I didn't read it the right way. I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not doing it right. I'll tell you what those are. Those are those are questions that are coming upon you of discipleship. And so this morning, I hope it's just kind of a a little case study of discipleship. And we're not going to get our hands all the way around it, but from the text, we're going to get some really good stuff. What is a good Christian? That's a fundamental question of discipleship. What is doing it right? What is following Jesus correctly or rightly look like? Let me say a word of prayer, and then we're going to read the text. Spirit, thank you for being present with us right now. And God, it's encouraging to know that your promise to never leave us or forsake us includes uh, right here on Sunday morning. I pray that the words that I say and the words that are received would be done in a, um, in a mystical, supernatural way, God, such that you would filter out parts that are from me and parts that are, um, that are added on. And God, that you would just give us the message here this morning that we need to hear from you. And there's something just incredible that goes on when people who are radically sold out to Jesus, committed to following him, get together for the purpose of worshiping and showing off and lifting up the name that's above every other name. And so we call on that mystical power that that happens when God's people gather. This morning, Lord, that as we open your word, we know them to be the words of life. And so God, speak to us this morning. Amen. Look at John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. And I'm just going to read this uh, going through about verse 39 here. It says this, The next day, John was there again. They're out in the wilderness. They're out by a river. Uh, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked them a question. Here's what he asked. What do you want? 
They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Let me just stop there for a moment. In your Bible, you see these words. You see the word follow. You see the words come and see. And depending on your translation, you see either word spent the day with or remained with Christ. Follow, come and see, remain. Following, coming and seeing, and remaining are three really critical components of what a disciple does. They follow, they come and see, and they remain. I want to point out two things for you this morning. Those are three kind of overarching ideas, but what we're going to see here this morning are two things that I want you to write down. These are in your, in your notes. And that is this. There are, there are two essential ingredients to be a disciple of Jesus. Not to be a disciple. Remember, we already, we already uncovered that you can be a disciple of a lot of different things. And so discipleship requirements for being you know, a disciple of, of you know, some great Tai Chi master uh, is completely different than what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But to be a disciple of Jesus, at least these two things are absolutely essential. One is that you must know who Jesus is, and one is that you must have had a personal encounter with Christ. Disciples must know who Jesus is. Here's one of the things that I want to make really clear, is that there were a lot of rabbis, there were a lot of teachers that were coming along. Jesus was not the first person who came along and said, hey, I'm a teacher, anyone want to sign up for my class? There were Jewish rabbis in the synagogue. In fact, if you were a good you know, Israelite kid, you grew up going to synagogue and you grew up listening to rabbis, you grew up listening to, to teaching and sitting under the instruction of someone else. There were lots of prophets that came along and said, I'm hearing from God, and I want to point you the way to eternal life. Is it any different today? Lots of voices out there, right, that are saying, hey, this is the way to a better you. This is the way to be successful. This is the way to really attain happiness. So there are lots of messiahs. There are lots of prophets. There are lots of teachers that you could be a disciple of. But what we're talking about is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And to do that, you must know who Jesus Christ of Nazareth is. You must really know who it is. It's not just a blind you know, following of a person named Jesus. I've met several Jesuses. You know, usually they have pronounced their name Jesus to you know, avoid whatever. I mean, for Americans, it avoids confusion a little bit. But Jesus is just a name. Right? It's not just blind faith to a person named Jesus. It's that this specific Jesus is worth following. Um, let me just illustrate it this way. Uh, how many of you in this room know Bill Gates? Yeah, you could kind of say yes or no. Like, you know of Bill Gates. I, I know of Bill Gates. I don't really personally know Bill Gates. I've written him several postcards. He's never written me back once. Um, no, I haven't really. But, um, but, you know, some people treat Jesus a little bit like, like this. If I say the name Bill Gates enough, if I say 25 Bill Gateses before I go to my bank, I will have more money because Bill Gates is wealthy. And if I just say his name, somehow kind of magically, I will get the money and take on the personification of Bill Gates-ishness 
and I will make money, you know, like crazy, and I will be really, really, really wealthy and live somewhere in Washington. That makes no sense to us. And so we would never sit around and say, Bill Gates, Bill Gates, Bill Gates. Ah, say it with more fervor. And so we're like, Bill Gates, Billy! And we're just, we, we can muster it up, but it's silly. It's kind of just a fool's errand. Why would you do that? That makes no sense to us. We would all just go, that's stupid. But you know what? That's how people treat the name of Jesus sometimes. They've kind of heard from other people little bits and snapshots of what Jesus is. And if you, if you haven't been born and raised in this country, I, I, I meet lots of international students, and just think about it. What you hear is someone coming along and say, um, you know, praise Jesus for something. And it could be said, you know, in, in kind of a whispered prayer. It could be said on TV, praise Jesus. And so they go, okay, that's one kind of little filter of what Jesus is about. Um, someone could bang their thumb with a hammer and call on the name of Jesus. Right? So maybe Jesus has to do with instant healing or, you know, ET power to touch and heal. You know, but they, they kind of catch it's a swear word. And then, and then Jesus over here. And then there's a Jesus bumper sticker. And, the, and then the Jesus saves. And then that Jesus is one of many. And you could pretty easily get confused as to what Jesus is, right? And so it's not just a blind following of Jesus. It's, it's knowing who Jesus is. Now, there's some name-calling that goes on in this passage, and I want to direct your attention to it. Look at verse 36. What's the name given to Jesus in verse 36? Someone call it out to me. Look at your Bible and, look and tell me. Lamb of God, okay? Verse 36, someone calls out Lamb of God. Who is it? Okay, John the Baptist. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and clearly states, that's the Lamb of God. Here's what the Lamb of God symbolized. We talked about this a little bit last week, but this is what it would draw up, what it would conjure up. It means that here is the sacrifice and payment of sins from God. This is the promised, perfect, spotless Lamb that will forever alter the sacrificial system. That's what he was saying when he said, Jesus, Lamb of God. Look down, um, look down in verse 41. What's the, what's the title given to Jesus in 41? Messiah. Okay. Who's saying it? Okay. We found, we found the Messiah. As the Messiah, again, a person who's, who's hearing this, and as someone rushing up and saying, we found the Messiah, what they were saying is, this is the one that all of our lives, all of our parents and grandparents and the people before them prophesied about that there would be a Savior that would come and redeem and save the people of Israel. Now, mind you, this was, this was an oppressed people. This was a people who didn't have the freedoms that we have. Uh, I can kind of watch the, the Olympics a little bit and realize, you know what? Uh, there are people that we're watching on the Olympics that didn't choose to you know, have their house removed so they could build the Olympic Village. I remember driving by this in April. And I'm driving along thinking about this. Here's this Olympic Village that I've never been to Central Park in New York, but it's massive. It's about that big. And I'm driving along and I'm just thinking, here they built this massive Olympic Village that's unreal in the middle of Beijing. You know that wasn't just open land there. Probably people lived there. Businesses were there. Things were happening there. 
And my hunch is, because I've talked to other store owners who were moved out for various reasons, that the Chinese government didn't come in and just politely say, you know what, we'll, we'll grant you some great land and, and get you set up elsewhere. They probably came in and said, we need Olympic Village. We're going to bulldoze this huge quadrant right in the middle of the city. Good luck. You know what their recourse is? Zilch. They say, okay, that's the way it is. I guess I like it because it's take it or leave it, you know, and you just deal with it. Well, the Israelites just lived every single day that way. Here's the rules and you'll like it. So imagine living every day with that in the back of your mind knowing that God was going to provide a way out. God was going to put things right one day. God was going to bring someone in and finally stick it to the man. You know, like it's just like, yes, I can't wait for that day. Because finally things will be just. And, and when the word Messiah is used, that's what they're talking about. You mean this is the Messiah? Yeah. The one prophesied about? Yes. Listen to 1 Peter 1.10. You can just write that down and see if I was lying later. But here's what it says. Concerning this salvation, okay, this Messiah, this Savior that's going to come, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It goes on to say, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, meaning this future people, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. Even the angels long to look into these things. Here's what he's saying. This is written after the death of Christ and after Christ already ascended. But basically he's saying this. Do you realize how fortunate you are to have lived in the days of Jesus Christ? The the prophets of long ago. In fact, let's go even bigger. The angels have longed to see the very things you are right now walking amidst and experiencing. Now backtrack. We're at the very start of this story. And the people who are around Jesus aren't even really grasping the full measure of what, the, what they're around and what they're experiencing it. But that's what we're leading into. And that's why it's so powerful. Verse 49, look there for a second. What is Jesus called in verse 49? What's the title given to him? What is it? Okay. Yeah, King, Son of God, King of Israel, right? So there's some other titles being, being offered up to, 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 to Jesus here. As king of Israel, we, just like we would think of a king, is that, that means that he's the ruler. He's one to be submitted to. It's, it's his will above everyone else's will. And so these, these three pictures, this, this idea of the Lamb of God, this, this idea of Messiah, and this idea of king and son of God, these are all important things. And if we had time, we could go into how each one knew the identity of Jesus. There were some supernatural things going on around it. But bottom line is it was revealed to them. Here's my question for you. Here's my question to us. We haven't seen Jesus across the street and been able to point to him and say, that's the Lamb, that's the Messiah, that's the King of Israel. But many of you in this room would say this, I know Jesus Christ. My question to you, my question to me is this. Could we accurately articulate what that phrase means? So could we take it the next step? 
A common thing that you might hear in churches is someone coming up and saying, Hey, Teddy, do you know Jesus? And people would say, Yeah, I know Jesus. But as you ask the next step and you say, Well, who is he? That's where you just go, I mean, just for your own self. I'm not going to ask anyone to define it so you can let your heart rate decrease a little bit. But how would you answer that next question? What if they said, well, I don't know who he is. I don't know anything about him. I've met lots of people that way. Do you know anything about Jesus Christ? And they say, nothing. Usually they're from a different country. If they're from here and they don't know anything more than a swear word, what a golden opportunity for you to tell them. What would you tell them? What would you explain? Do you know who Jesus is? Now, I'm not talking about some kind of memorized thing that you just regurgitate onto them where it's just kind of clinical and sterile. Because I could do that for Bill Gates, right? But do you know Jesus? Could, could, you, could you articulate him if someone asked? Our love for God, which, which is something that as a Christian, as a disciple, ought to be just really high. Your love for God ought to drive and motivate everything you do. Some would call it personal piety and just this devotion to God ought to be really, really high. But there's kind of a second, there's a second thing that ought to be really high and really, and really growing constantly, and that is your knowledge of God. See, what happens is sometimes people grow, and sometimes whole churches grow up in, in love for God. And they go, well, do you love God? Yeah. Are you devoted to God? Yes. I show it to him by all these different things. But you begin to ask them some just fundamental, basic things that the Bible teaches, and they aren't able to articulate what it is they're devoted to. I have two simple books in my, in my library. One is called Know what, what You Believe, and the other one's called Know Why You Believe. And each one, just short, simple, little chapters. But they cover things like this. The Bible. Is it God's Word? How can I know? What if someone came up and asked you that? You believe in the Bible, right? Yeah. How come? How do you know it's God's Word? Uh, you know, I know there's good answers for that, but I don't have them. Really? But you believe in it and you've based your life on it? Uh-huh. Do you see how very quickly that challenges you to either totally reevaluate what you say is true and what's really true, or... You get on your horse and you go find out why you believe that and if that's really true. And sometimes it's this mystical thing out here that you have to force yourself and go, now how can I explain that? I know it's true. I've seen God come through. I know His promises are real. But how can I, how can I articulate that? And, and God will, will help you with that. Here's some other things it covers. Is Jesus God? Did Jesus really claim to be God? I've had lots of people come to me and say, you know, you Christians believe Jesus is God, but he never really said that. Find one sentence there where he says, I am Jesus Christ and I'm God. Is that in the Bible or isn't it? How do you know he's God? Did he really ever say he was God? And when someone asks you that, do you have an answer on the tip of your tongue? Because you know it and you've worked through some of this stuff. Here's another thing it, it, it covers. Does, does, Christianity differ, does Christianity differ from other religions? How? Why? Does it matter? How is one able to know beyond the shadow of a doubt they're going to heaven? What is the Spirit of God all about? What about things to come? Now, I hope that I've touched on an area where you feel really weak in. Maybe you, you nail four of those because you're like, oh, yeah, I totally know that. Here's the point, though. 
I don't care if you became a Christian yesterday or you've been walking with Christ for 25 years. You know that you're to be growing in your knowledge of God? Has anyone here arrived? Is anyone here an expert on these things? Probably not. I'm certainly not. So there's always room to grow. In fact, it's not just, it's not just that, that this is a good idea and preachers somehow get on this thing where like, why, does, why does he want everyone to study all the time? You know that it's a, a constant command in Scripture. Paul's praying for a church. He says, I pray that you grow in your knowledge of the salvation. I, I, it's constantly woven through Scripture. And here's why I think this premium is put on knowledge is because the Christian life is not just about commitment, but the Christian life is about content. What if you get to the end of walking with Christ all these years and it wasn't even Jesus you were following? It was kind of this man-made, really feel-good, fun place to kind of come and belong where everybody knows your name because you wear a name tag. I mean, what if you went to church for 25 years and then you just chuck it all? I have a relative who was in the ministry for years and years and years and years. And at the end of it, he chucked it all and renounced every last bit of what his life's work was about. It's climbing that ladder and just being like, wow, I'm on this wall and there's nothing up here. So content is is imperative. It's very important to know who Jesus Christ is. Some people followed Jesus without knowing who he was. Think about Jesus. He'd go out to the countryside and he'd perform different things, right? So some people were out there just kind of for the show. Uh, my kids are up with my, uh, with my mom and stepdad this weekend and they went to the fair. It's not unlike the fair because Penn Valley is kind of a podunk place out in the wilderness and people go out to the fair to go kind of watch a show. There were a lot of people who were following Jesus around because he was the traveling show. He was something going on. Did they know who Jesus was? No. Lamb of God, Messiah, King, none of that. They're just kind of watching a show. Some people go and follow Jesus due to the freebies, right? Hey, I heard there was like, you know, free fish and chips last week. What's going on with that? You know, and they're just kind of there checking out, you know, it's that guy over there. So they're just like, call their buddies, they're texting people, get out here, you know, it's a free meal. And they're just kind of following Jesus. Do they know who Jesus is? Absolutely not. The extent of their knowledge might be he, he dishes out food and does some cool magic tricks once in a while. Some followed him to, to trip him up. There were religious people out there, right, who, who had their set view of holiness, who had their set view of God. They were dead wrong in their views. But they were following Jesus around. They were looking to trip him up. They were looking to point out how his views didn't measure up with their views. They were out there to kind of control the situation and squelch this uneducated peon of a man. And as I thought about the people who were there and this crowds that would develop, you know what Jesus did periodically? He thinned them out. These big crowds would come out and once in a while he'd say, uh-uh, can I just get everyone's attention here for one second? And then he'd say some outlandish comment that would immediately wipe out tons of people because they're like, huh? What did he just say? Someone asked him in Matthew, uh, I wrote this down because I didn't know where it was, Matthew 8, Matthew 8, he says, hey, I'm ready to follow you. And Jesus comes back with this. Oh, good. That means you'll have no place to lay your head because that's what the Son of Man has. So if you want to follow me, you're going to get nothing of creature comforts of this world. 
Oh, and by the way, do it right now. Don't wait until you know someone dies and, and your estate gets handled and you finish your education and you get married and settled in your happy little life. Do it right now or else it just doesn't count. It's not, you're not worthy of being my disciple. Well, that's kind of rude. Yeah, I know. Oh, well, I'm leaving. Okay. And he just drew these lines in the sand and said, anyone who wants to play by the rules of my game, here they are. Come with me. And tons of people would disperse. I just look at that, and then there's, I mean, you've heard me say this from the front, but the disciples would come around and go, that's not very politically correct. Quit doing that, Jesus. That was kind of rude. You were really offensive to the religious people. And Jesus knew full well why he was there, what he was saying, what the rules of the game were. He was calling them to something totally different than what they would have expected. How about people today? Do people, do people today um, fill our churches sometimes? Maybe not our church, but maybe our church. And they're just here for a good show. And if the band's a little bit off or if, you know, if, if Rob was off key a little bit or if the message was a little bit funky or, you know, I lost my place or dropped my notes, it's like, eh, about a five today. It's okay. It's just kind of a show. You go to events maybe. You go to Christian events and go, yeah, that was okay. Maybe sometimes people come for the freebies. You know what? I go to church and people actually ask my name and people actually want to come around and help me do stuff. And that's pretty cool. Sometimes I think people even come to churches with their set religious views, their set views on holiness and God, and nothing's going to change that. But they're going to come to kind of be here and and make sure things stay the same. And that's so different than what Jesus called us to as a band of followers. And if your discipleship path is on any one of those tracks, I would challenge you to look to Scripture and make sure you're climbing up the right ladder. To make absolute sure that your view of discipleship lines up with what Jesus called discipleship. And that whoever called you and invited you to church for the first time called you to the right thing. How many's life, how many people's lives have just become perfect once they've accepted Christ? Anyone in the room? Yeah. A sneering laugh I got from the second row. Like, are you kidding me? Read it in the scriptures. A lot of times your life gets worse. You know what? People get mad at me now. I wasn't a very offensive guy before, but I'm kind of offensive to people now. You know what? I had to give up some things that, that used to be really easy to just say yes to, and now I've got all this weird moral tension in me just saying, no, don't do that. I used to be able to do that without batting an eye. Sometimes your life gets a lot worse before it gets better. I want to point you to one more scripture here before we move on to the second thing, and that is this. Look at Luke 4.40. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew He was the Christ. You know why I put that little story in there? To point this out. Knowing who Jesus is and leaving it at that qualifies you to be a demon. That's it. Demons know who Christ is. They knew He was the Son of God. They knew He was the Christ, the Promised One, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God. And they shrieked it. So, 
if all it took was just knowing who Jesus is and education and having right theological answers, many of us would say, yeah, I qualify for that. But there's a second, second equally uh, important component. This new life that goes on is the second one, that, that, that a disciple must have a personal encounter with Christ. I've met lots of people who said, Dave, I've grown up in the church. I know all the right answers. But for whatever reason, this week, these circumstances went on and it moved, it moved from my head and it just went right into my heart. And it's like, I get it now. My eyes are opened up. And they're just, blah, 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 and they're babbling this stuff out. And I'm just sitting there going, whoa! Isn't that the coolest thing ever? And they go, Yeah! And they go, I don't know how I didn't know it before. I mean, everything was laid out for me right there. You know what it was? They knew who Jesus was. They had been taught well, but they'd never had a personal encounter with Christ. We're not going to take the time this morning, but you go read it. Watch the personal encounters with Christ that go on. Someone comes to Christ, finds out who He is, says, oh my goodness, I think this is the Messiah. They go find someone and they don't sit down and have a Bible study teaching them. They bring him to Jesus. Come here. Come with me. You've got to come meet Jesus. You have to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That's the pattern that we see in the Scriptures. It happened in Judea. It happened in Galilee, covered in our text. When people began to ask this question, who is Jesus really? I start to get really, really excited. To me, that's a fun place for a person to be. Because they go, I've heard all this stuff about him, but who is he really? And I don't feel the slightest bit threatened by that. I feel excited by that. And I go, you know what? You're asking a great question. You're asking a question that I asked at one point. And it was so critical for me to ask that question. Because you don't want to get that one wrong. But I'll tell you what I start to do. I start to pray for that personal encounter. And I have yet to figure out how this goes on. If you want a physical example of, of this, read through, the, read through and start to chart the ways that Jesus healed people. Okay? And you just ask this question, how does Jesus heal someone? And you could start making a list of things. What are some things you guys know from reading the Bible about how Jesus, what's his methodology? How does Jesus heal someone? Give me an example. What do you want? What do you want? Okay? He asks a question. What else? Yeah. Loogie mud on the eye, heal. Next. What else do we know? Yeah, go, go and see the priest. And on the way, the guys... I mean, we could go on like this for a while. It's fascinating. So someone comes to you and says, well, how does, how does Jesus heal? Which one do you want? I don't know. I mean, I mean here's a list of what he's done so far, but, but there's so much more. And... And at, at every turn, you know, hey, put your staff in. Okay, never done that before. Wow, there's a sea parting before me. How does Jesus save? In some ways, it's as different as the person, as the person you're looking at. And that's why hearing from people and saying, how did you meet Jesus? What, what did it mean for you when, you when you personally encountered the Christ? And they're varied and they're unique. For these men, it was an invitation to follow, and they followed. For one of these guys, it was a miraculous baptism that went on, and he went, boom, that's the one I know for sure now. Uh, for Nathaniel, 
It was a miraculous statement. He's being brought, and before he even gets there, he's like, Nathaniel, he's like talking to him. He goes, here comes a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. And Nathaniel's question to him says this. He says in verse, uh, in verse 48, how do you know me? And I love Jesus' reply. He says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Just one of the cool things of being God. You get to pull cool tricks like this. I mean, who knows what he was doing out there, but Nathaniel's probably out having a quiet time or probably doing something to honor the Lord. And no one's around. He knew he was totally by himself. And his immediate response is, my Lord and my God. I mean, he just, he comes and, you know, and, and he heaps this praise. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe because of that little trick? I've got way more up my sleeve. You know, it's a neat little picture here and just a thought for you. As a disciple, is this idea that God is sovereignly working and he sees you long before you see him. And you know what? He doesn't see your exterior. He sees your heart. Here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. He didn't talk about his appearance, but he talked about his heart. An interesting study would be this. Let me have the band come on up. I'm going to have them sing a song right now. But it would be to go around to people in this church. And I would, I would recommend especially doing it to someone older than you. Someone who's got more years on the road with Christ than you have. And just go up to them and say, can we grab a cup of coffee sometime? And can you share with me how it is that you were born again? How it is that you were converted? How you were brought from a life of slavery to sin to a life of freedom from sin? Can you just tell me about that, please? I never, ever tire of hearing those stories. Those to me are unbelievably cool stories. And I always just, I find myself going, no way. That's how it happened with you? That's crazy. I've never heard that before. And I've been asking this, people this question for, for years and years. And God's encountered people in different ways. I want you to listen to this song. It's called God With Us. And we're going to be doing this as a worship song during this series. But I want you just to look at the words and let the, the music kind of flow over you as we, as we uh, look at this and hear it this morning. and you find yourself singing along and it's doing something in you. It's a good chance you've had a personal encounter with Christ. I hear those words and I can think. Some people have this, some people don't. I can think to an exact place and time and date that God just, it's like He just pulled a veil away from my eyes. Some people don't have that and it doesn't make it any less powerful or real or true. But those words mean something to me. 
that there's been a debt that's been paid and there are chains that have fallen away because God is with me. I want to very quickly just invite you to turn your paper over and we're going to look at three people. Three case studies and they're going to be encouraging to you. Those of you who feel you don't read your Bible enough, share your faith enough, pray enough, or do it in the right way, are committed enough, or are spiritual enough, may have bought a lie. You may have bought a lie that says once you're perfect and once you're neat and once you incrementally grow like steps that lead right up to heaven, then you're on the true path. And I would say the Bible shatters that image and says, are you kidding me? And it causes you to say hallelujah because you go, where does grace fit into that? That's the path to Phariseeism. That's the path to being really, really religious. That's that's the path to trying harder on your own. And Jesus came to abolish that kind of slavery. John the Baptist. Who did God pick to be the forerunner? He picked John the Baptist. John the Baptist was uneducated. He was off the grid living in the wilderness. He was eating locusts and honey. He was doing crazy kinds of things. And this is who God chose to say, this will be my forerunner. Jesus comments on him saying, there's not been a single person born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. Guess what? John the Baptist was sure. He was convinced. He was bold. He proclaimed the truth no matter who showed up on the scene. And you go, great, that's supposed to encourage me? (laughs) Because I'm none of those things. I didn't sell myself. I sell my house and go, go live in the wilderness. I don't own anything made of camels, fur, or whatever. I don't know. I don't, I'm not that committed, I guess. Let me, let me turn your attention, and we won't have time to turn there, but write down Matthew chapter 11, and just listen as I read Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent the disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. John asking this question seems like a legitimate question until you begin to realize the start of John's ministry. Remember how convinced he was? He knew who Jesus was. In fact, while he was in the womb, the Bible records that he was was leaping in the womb when he heard Mary because she was carrying the Savior. He knew from his bones, from his depths, that Jesus, his cousin, was in fact the Messiah. In our text today in John 1, he's boldly proclaiming it. Thoroughly convinced. What happened to change all that? Quick backstory. John is there. He calls out King Herod because of an, an affair he's having, an adulterous relationship. Ever the prophet, John calls it as he sees it, with no regard to how much power this person has. You know what the person did? It's a longer story to it, but he basically throws John in prison, and John is in prison right now awaiting his head being chopped off and served up on a platter. Gruesome, gross, I know, but it's in the Bible. That's the circumstances that have suddenly turned where now he's going, go find out from Jesus. Are you the one or are we supposed to wait for someone else? 
there's this crisis of faith that has arisen. He had already heard about all this great list Jesus said. Here's the things I'm doing. He had heard about those things. I think what he was feeling is, Jesus, I've always been there for you. Now in my hour of need, where are you? Why are you out preaching to all those people, healing people, causing people to have sight and, and hearing? What about me? I think that's what John's asking here. I think that's why there's a crisis of faith here. Here's what I'm driving home to you. True disciples. Was John a true disciple? Absolutely. Here's a principle. True disciples move from rock-solid conviction to wavering doubt when the going gets tough. Doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that sound like you? And then the enemy sneaks in and says, you must not be a true disciple if you doubt ever. And God says, wait a minute, I've got, I've got tons of stories of people who wavered and struggled. You're in good company if you've ever done that. That's John the Baptist. Who did Jesus pick to hand off his mission to? One of them was John. This is John, the beloved disciple, okay? The one writing our story. John would remain true to the end. In fact, even when he was banished away from everything he loved, he remained true. John wrote this gospel so that people would believe and have life. John was, uh, was called the beloved disciple. He had all this going for him, yet... Listen to this. He also had some problems. There's a scene that takes place in a tiny Samaritan village. And on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus and his, his disciples stopped at this village for the evening. And Samaritans, who would have nothing to do with, with uh, Israelites because they would have nothing to do with them, decided basically to, to make it really problematic for them and was causing problems for Jesus and his disciples. James and John... Mind you, John's the beloved disciple and wrote a lot about love in the Bible. Uh, they're furious. And they basically come up to Jesus with what seems like a very undiscipleship-like type of question. They say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? So here's the people. They've walked with Jesus, right? They've understood his message. They've watched his ministry. And here's the disciple of love. Let me, just, let me just read a quote from his later work. Ready for this? Here's 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Except for people who tick you off. Then you call down fire from heaven and kill them. Here's the point I'm driving home. Jesus hands off the mission of the church, the, the rise or fall of it, to a band of disciples of the likes of John. The point is this. True disciples walk closely with the Savior, soaking in His life and message, but then sometimes turn around and seek to kill the very people Jesus came to save. That sounds like you and I sometimes. I'm not recommending any of these things to you. I'm just pointing out from Scripture, you are in great company. And don't be deceived that by virtue of your high-standing, perfect life that always gives the appropriate answer, somehow God will be glorified in that. You may be well on your way to being a Pharisee, if that's what you think. Finally, Peter. And just very quickly, we won't even go into this. He was called the rock, but rocky might be more, you know, you know, more accurate. Because he just had a rocky path with Christ. 
And just two snapshots of, of Peter. One is there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus invites just a couple of disciples, his closest ones. In fact, Peter, the one he would call as kind of the leader. And he says, come up with me. Jesus is transfigured before them. And John adds this, that he didn't know what else to say. And so he blurts out, uh, we should build three temples here to honor what's happening. And God basically tells him to shut his trap. Basically just says, shh, Peter. Not now. Peter had a way of always saying things and blurting things out when he probably shouldn't be speaking. And yet when it comes time to stand up for Christ, proclaim the truth, what does Peter do? He kind of falls silent. He stammers and he backtracks and he says, I I don't even know who you're talking about. True disciples speak up when they should be silent and sometimes go mute when they should shout it from the mountaintops. If you've heard the voice that says, man, you're not a very good disciple, lean it up against Scripture. Don't measure it up to Glenn. I've never started an orphanage in Africa. I must not be doing so hot. I never memorized Leviticus in four languages. Bummer. We get these things in our head and it gets us off track. It gets us majoring on the minors. Let me just have the the band come up and I want to close with with this thought. 1 Corinthians 1.26, just write it down. It says this, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. We're talking about true disciples here, okay? Here's Paul encouraging the church. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were noble of, of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Do you feel like a mess here this morning? Do you feel like you should be running and you're still barely learning to walk in some of the key disciplines? Do you feel like a disciple who's not following close enough or committed enough or educated enough? You are in fantastic company. Much of the New Testament was written to untangle the mess that the the church had gotten themselves into. Every single day, you ought to wake up and be thankful for the grace of God in your life. I close with a story. Grant Ball is a kid who um, a few weeks ago lost about a three and a half year battle with cancer. He He would have turned 17 in a couple of weeks. And yesterday was his memorial service. I went for two and a half hours. Longest memorial service I've ever been a part of. Valley Church was absolutely packed out. Two of the kids are in our college group and close friends of mine. And it was heartbreaking to sit there and watch Mark give, a, give kind of a eulogy for his brother, his younger brother, and he's only in college. And to watch Krista get up there and share things. And, and yet, the two and a half hours was the epitome of hope in the midst of trouble. Hope in the midst of adversity. Early on in the process, Grant had to have his right leg amputated. And so for the last three years of his life, he lived it one-legged. And story after story was coming out, and a recurring theme kept coming up, supernatural grace. Mom and Dad, can you imagine giving this testimony about your kid? He never once complained about the cancer. He always fought it with bravery. 
His faith in God never wavered. His siblings would say this. The non-Christian doctors would say this. The nursing staff would say this. We've rarely seen someone, adult or otherwise, face cancer with as much faith. And it's like his curtain call came a lot earlier than any of us would have picked. But what a testimony. It was a two and a half hour worship service is what it was yesterday. And it pointed to something far greater than Grant. Far greater than than just a pretty typical high school kid with one leg. It pointed to a supernatural God living out through a very ordinary kind of a kid with phenomenal results. He was a disciple that, like John the Baptist, had his life called from him a little bit earlier than most of us think is fair or reasonable. And yet he lived his days in supernatural grace and made an impact and showed off the glory of God. That's what a true disciple is all about. Father, would you help us get a picture of what it means to say that we know you. God, for those in this room who've never experienced a personal encounter with you, I pray, God, that you would allow that to happen in this place, on this morning, in the next few minutes. Father, for those of the people in this room who may have forgotten their first love, and maybe they've overcomplexed everything that the Christian life is about, would you bring it back to the basics for them, Lord? We thank you as a people, as a group of people, for your grace and your mercy that lovingly covers up a multitude of sins and that you're there to pick us up, dust us off, and get us on our way again if we just humble ourselves and get real before you. We pray that the real Jesus would read the, meal, the, the real us in this place right now. Amen.